0: and welcome. It's Jenny Organically, and this is the final episode of the Very, Very Quite Contrary Podcast Season 1. So thank you to everyone who's been listening, rating, and reviewing, and sharing the podcast. We've had some wonderful guests this season, a lot of information shared. I've learned a lot, and I've had some great conversations with some really amazing people. Today is no exception. We've got... None other than Zach Bush. Now, a lot of you know him. He's a medical doctor, he's a triple board certified physician, and he exploded onto the scene in my view when he went on the Rich Roll podcast back in January. And at that point, I had only heard of him in passing, maybe on a superficial level. I had some friends of mine who were had been using his product Restore and were really big fans of it. And it wasn't until that podcast from Rich Roll that I will link to, because if you haven't heard it, you need to. And so I'm not trying to redo that because it has such good information in there. And there were lots of pausing and rewinding. I sent it to everybody I knew. I shared it on all my platforms. And within weeks, I was enrolled in his intrinsic health biology base camp. And yeah, I mean, you know me, I'm very particular slash picky fastidious. And a reflexive contrarian. I mean, hence the name of this podcast. And but there were just so many things that that Zach speaks to that are just founded in truth. So I knew I needed to pursue the information that he was willing to give. And so once he passed my initial Fort Knox screening process, I was like all in. I wanted to learn what he had to say. And so I really recommend you know at least. Exploring that initial podcast with Rich Roll to really give you the full in-depth picture of what is happening with our soil impacting our food and our health. We're going to talk a little bit about that um, because I I know he's already talked a lot about it. And I know a lot of you have already heard it. And so I'm going to explore just a little bit more some of the stuff that I've learned in base camp and a lot of things that actually impacted my life directly that was outside of the information about the soil. And although that is really important and Yeah. So I hope you really get a lot out of this as well and stay tuned and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well welcome, Zach Bush, MD. My husband and I had the pleasure of hearing you speak at a gathering recently, just a couple months ago. We got to do yoga with your wife and we all shared a farm-to-table meal together and we we got to hug, which I know that you're, <laughs> you're big on. Can you th- right. tell everybody why hugging is like a big part of the communication?
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite days of the year so far. That was a beautiful day out at a Luminary Farm there, outside of San Francisco and Danville there, in California. Amazing day that we had. Beautiful sunshine. Incredible, uh, perfect, you know, green backdrop uh, on that farm that day as we saw the spring colors uh, coming across those fields and uh, rolling hills. And the hug is really a, a profound, you know, starting point I think for. Human communication and this concept of maybe energetic and emotional vulnerability—a uh, really powerful foundation to build community on—and showing a sense of vulnerability, partnership, camaraderie, and an even even playing field. A uh, handshake often denoted uh, is the closest we come in a business setting or whatever, and a handshake can be dominating or you know adversarial as. Uh, a confrontation verbally can be, uh, whereas a hug is kind of impossible to completely screw up. You know, you've got yeah. this this moment of like, okay, we're going to come into this space. We're going to break down our personal bubbles that we hold so uh, holy most of the day, and we're going to let those down, and we're going to we're going to let our bodies come together here in a moment of vulnerability and, and trust. And so, <clears throat> for that reason, I tend to to hug everybody I meet just because it, it helps me be a more efficient. Um, community builder, a more efficient diagnostician, really, of human relationships. So in the, cl- in the clinic, if I walk in and hug every patient walking in the door, mm-hmm. I pretty immediately have a very good read without ever doing a lab test, without ever starting a conversation or a- knowing their medical history. I can get a quick read on what is their overall energy level, how much energy is their body producing, what's their metabolic state, uh, how much degeneration do they have in their body, what's their emotional state. I can pick up on all that in, in you know a ten to thirty second encounter with a hug in the midst of it, and so. Uh, it's a very powerful quick experience of another human and a quick read on where they're at in business It's very powerful because frankly, I'm, I'm not I'm wasting my time with people that are are trying to do business with me who are un- unwilling to be vulnerable and uh, Be at the same playing level uh, that I, I'm willing and able to be at and so I think Everybody would find that this becomes a really quick uh, you know discerning tool to tool of discernment in life to speed up your identification of yeah. those people you want in your community
0: yeah good point and, and you were it was, it's a full embrace it's not a side church hug <laughs>
1: that's <You're> right <laughs> uh, i'm kind of yeah I, people are uh, simultaneously uh, surprised uh, I think is slightly awkward, and then <laughs> incredibly blessed by a hug when they realize, yeah. oh, this guy's actually giving me a hug, and right. uh, it definitely sets off the guys uh, oddly. They're, they often will react, and then within a couple seconds, they tend to like be so glad for it. And some Listen of my up. most ri- ridiculous hugs I've had are from a guy who's like imi- initial knee jerk history core, and then they're like, oh my gosh, I totally want a hug right now, and they'll, they'll get into it. <laughs> and um and so it's it's a really uh, it's a great icebreaker as well so
0: yeah totally <laughs> so uh zach you're triple board certified physician and so as a child, did you say, I, I want, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor, and you just didn't know you're going to do it three times?
1: <laughs> no, I actually didn't do any of that. Uh, I decided I was, I was going to be a, uh, a Lego master as a child, <laughs> and I was going to build Legos the rest of my life, and then uh, that got me into the engineering world and decided I was going to uh, go to engineering school at the University of Colorado, I applied for robotics uh, department there, and was very excited to join that project and that program. And then um, suddenly kind of went through a heartbreak event. Uh, my only girlfriend in high school kind of you know, managed to destroy my young and naive oh. emotionality. And so I was devastated and thought, I, I just need to put myself back together. And it's kind of funny to look back on your 19-year-old self and be yeah. like, seriously, that that was <laughs> devastating? you got to yeah. be kidding me. <laughs> um, but anyway, any rate, so this little event was kind of devastating my life. But it was enough to just make me want to pause. And it turned out to be a major turning point in my life. I decided to take a year off of college, and within a few seconds, literally, of making that decision, the phone rang, and it was an aunt of mine that I vaguely knew, uh, who lived in the Philippines and was running a, a midwifery clinic there of international midwives, and, and said, do you want to come help? We could use some help for six months in our clinic. And I was like, wow, that sounds totally outside the box and yeah. interesting. So I said yes. I, I worked... For uh, busting tires at a tire shop for six months to raise the money for the trip, and uh, got my my purse in shape, and then re- took a flight over the Philippines, and within a few hours was dumped in my first neonatal care clinic, and um, I thought I was just going to like maybe wash dishes or something, mm-hmm. but they had me holding these little 14-day-old babies doing hip dystocia exams and doing these newborn screenings. And it was just like, what the heck? I, I have no training. You shouldn't trust me with these little right. things.
0: Because you had no medical training at this point. None,
1: none. And so it was, it was daunting. It was a little overwhelming uh, at first. But um, 14 days in or two weeks into my trip, uh, the woman who was the head of the newborn uh, kind of screenings and, and midwife was uh, called away to a family emergency back in Canada. So she rushed off and Everybody's like, well, you've had, like, two weeks of the job. You should just take this over. I was like, exactly, I have two weeks of medical experience. So I mm. should be taking over nothing. Um, but the the bizarre situation with these third-world countries, it was at that moment I was the most experienced person in the room to be doing what I was doing. So took that on, and by the end of six months, I'd really seen some of the most extraordinary Experiences that to this day continue to shape me. You know, birthing my, the first baby that I, I birthed in the, was in the back of a rushing van at about 3 o'clock in the morning through the streets of Manila, Philippines. Uh, it was a woman who was, you know, our doorbell was rung on, at the house at 3 o'clock in the morning, and this woman was bleeding out. We'd never seen her before. She was uh, had severe developmental delays, nonverbal, you know, neurologic injuries herself, and she was probably. In her twenties, had been raped and pregnant. She didn't understand she was pregnant. She didn't know why she was bleeding, but somebody had dropped her off at our doorstep and rang the doorbell and ran off. And so we stuck her in the van and we're on the way to the hospital. And suddenly there was a baby coming out into my hands, and I, none of us were expecting that. And she, wow. and it was the tiniest baby I've ever seen, uh, this little like two and a half pound premature infant born into my hands, kind of just blue as a blue bottle can be and uh, not breathing and I was you know overwhelmed I was stressed to a high degree just massive adrenaline rush and uh, kind of overwhelmed by the moment the woman's you know distressed and crying not even understanding that there's a baby in the room or anything and suddenly that little baby pinked up and started crying and tiniest little cry you've ever heard it was like you know just like a little mouse it was just so tiny And that remains one of the loudest voices in my life, that little experience and that that just the injustice of so many layers of poverty and abuse and uh, heartbreak and loneliness and zero, like at the human level, like zero expectation of this little you know two pound infant had any shot in life born into the squats of the philippines no mom no dad no family no support system like just doomed and yet this child had this drive for life and that has really stuck with me that uh, we have a fundamental drive for life and we can overcome the most extreme odds because our biology demands it our biology demands that we push towards life we push towards consciousness we push towards breath and that's hopeful to me
0: yeah, what a powerful moment. So did you decide you wanted to pursue medicine at that point of, because of that experience in the Philippines?
1: Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I think I came back from that with kind of options, deciding to go open. I went into, I, it had been really meaningful to be overseas. I decided to just go into a degree with uh, Spanish and learn a foreign language and make that my my focus and then um, I really decided I really wanted to be in developing worlds and all that and then uh portion, portion way through the first year I realized I was having a hard time integrating into the concepts of engineering and all of this because it just didn't have the life within it and so I'd, I had been infected with this kind of experience of life and decided maybe I could be a nurse because I actually hated school, uh, hated taking tests and so certainly going into college and pre-med. I certainly did not realize I would spend the next 17 years after that taking tests and doing the triple board certified stuff and everything else just because I didn't realize I was going to hit my stride and I did in medical school some four or five years later when I hit medical school it was like a whole new world and found out that I was really born with a purpose and when you're in flow things that seem insurmountable, gets so simple, and uh, everything starts to make sense, and that certainly happened to me through medical school, and uh, it's been a really exciting and fun ride since.
0: And so you're trained in allopathic medicine, correct?
1: Yeah, allopathic, very western-minded, pharmaceutically trained, right. you know, very inside-the-box thinking uh, that drove me down through those specialties. Internal medicine is, was my first specialty. That's like general adult care, hospital care, primary care, so I was running a primary clinic and then uh, doing a lot of hospital care, running everything from the cardiology floor to the pulmonary to the GI suites to the bone marrow transplant unit, You know, cycling in and out every month from a different ward uh, through that internal medicine experience um went on to a teaching year on faculty there in internal medicine residency um chief resident and then went on to endocrinology and metabolism which is the study of hormones and how they regulate the human body into a cohesive uh you know system of, of cooperative biology and metabolism is the study of these little guys called mitochondria that live inside of our cells and that was unknowingly at the time, it was my introduction into this extraordinary world of what we call the microbiome, these little bugs that live in and around us to care for and drive human biology. And so the mitochondria are little bacterial-like uh, organelles that live inside of our cells. They proliferate in our cells. There's some 200 to 2,000 of these guys that live inside of our cells. They produce energy, famously. Uh, we're always told the mitochondria the power plant within the human cell. But it's important to realize they're bacteria with a viral DNA, and they're actually more like bacteria that are just digesting food in their environment. And in their digestive process, they do make fuel, but more importantly, uh, perhaps they make the communication networks that coordinates inside the cell repair systems and replacement systems and cell suicide if damage is too severe in the cell and things like that. Um, So really cool uh, education that dove me into this world of cooperative biology between the microbiome and human cells and that got me into cancer research. So I ended up developing some chemotherapy protocols and chemotherapy drugs in the area of vitamin A compounds or nutritional compounds. So I was doing cancer research in the lab. I was doing endocrinology, diabetes, autoimmune care and such in the clinic and teaching aggressively. So I loved it. I loved academia. I thought I was going to stay there the whole life. And then the universe had other plans again and sent me (laughs) in 2010 in a different direction again.
0: Yeah. And I remember you speaking about doing cancer research and the cells doing something that you then associated with something else. I think it was like a diabetes patient that you saw oh, yeah. some similarities there.
1: Yes. Yeah. That was definitely one of the blinders off moments. I think, you know, we all go through life stumbling from one aha moment to the next. And this was kind of a big one for me. I was, uh, I was studying, I was looking at micros, under the microscope at a bunch of cancer cells and their infiltration into healthy tissue um, in my lab, and then I uh, realized I was running late for clinic. Ran over to clinic, and you know, within five minutes, and those images still in my mind, I jumped into this exam room. And this patient uh, had a diabetic ulcer in their ankle that was infected and gnarly. And so, I was debreeding this ulcer in clinic and taking out all this dead tissue. And suddenly, there was a moment where the, the tissue sitting in front of me in this person's ankle looked exactly like the infiltration of cancer cells moving into to healthy tissue. These these kind of infected inflammatory cells were infiltrating healthy cells in the same pattern and it was a sudden moment of recognition of singularity of what if there's not really such a thing as cancer? What's not such a thing as diabetic ulcer, which is a bunch of lexicon? What if there's only one thing, which is a loss of structure and function due to this acidic inflammatory loss of communication that happens in tissue as it becomes diseased or as health collapses? And so that was one of those aha moments of what if we don't have a million diseases and we just have a lack of health?
0: Right. And so that loss of communication is that on the cell level? I know you've mentioned where these these cells get isolated and they're lonely and they replicate. Is that kind of where the inflammation starts? Is inflammation at the root or is it the, the cell health or are they one and the same?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of these kind of famous chicken under the egg things in some ways. But the inflammatory process um, begins, you know, I think, in an injury typically. And so it can be an acute injury that turns then into a chronic injury. Uh, But injury can come in many different shapes and forms. It's bizarre to remember that only 0.001% of human tissue is actually solid, right? We're made of atoms that are 99.999% vacuum space. And so when you come to terms with the fact that the human body is mostly vacuum space and you start to let go of your kind of mechanical Newtonian belief about here's this solid structure of the liver and it's touching the solid liver of the vascular Mm -hmm. system or whatever, you start to realize There's a much more ethereal reality. It starts to paint a backdrop or a canvas on which you can start to understand the many types of injury that we can uh, achieve at a tissue level. And one of these is emotional injury. And I would say, by and large, my current worldview is that every significant biologic dysfunction and disorder at the chronic state begins, I believe, with a, a major emotional trauma. And those emotional traumas screw up the electromagnetic field uh, in and around the solid portions of the atomic structure. That then, as that changes, will modify the interaction of the electrons and the protons, which are the solid portions of the atom, such that their relationships change. And we start to get dysfunction at that molecular slash atomic level. And that starts to lead to this lack of cohesive communication or flow of energy through a system. A good way of thinking of this in some ways is for those of you old enough to remember you know, rabbit ear antennas on the television when we actually could change the channel from CBS to NBC you, you would go and adjust those rabbit ears almost every time you change the channel and what you were doing in that situation is you were asking the, the TV antenna to just pay attention to a narrow bandwidth or a narrow wavelength of information coming through the air to that uh, analog antenna on top of your house. The rabbit ears were used to you know, fine tune that wavelength at each uh, station's signal. If they were slightly off, if they were a little bit uh, beyond or too narrow for the wavelength that you were trying to hit, you got static that static is exactly what happens at the energetic level of our tissue and so if you're slightly out of phase of the the proper wavelength if you're starting to get some atomic stretch if you will from uh, a dysfunction or a disruption of the electromagnetic field you start to create these static like disruptions in the, in the energetic information flow between systems Uh, Ancient technologies prove this, you know, uh, dating back thousands and thousands of years. Before that we had the steel needle, Ho Shin, which was the technology that preceded acupuncture, used the bee stinger to uh, initially map out these electrical patterns in the body, which would become acupuncture today. And uh, acupuncture would kind of then proceed with the steel needle to take on a lot of different forms. Uh, but I send a lot of my patients still for Ho Shin because I think there's a lot of interesting medicinal qualities to this but nonetheless what the bee stinger or the needle is doing ends up being a tuning device for those energetic pathways in the body. And so many people over the thousands of years have had such dramatic improvement in health and longevity from this technology that's persisted. Can you imagine a chemotherapy that would survive 4,000 years of technological advances and still be around in 4,000 years? There's no way. There is no way. Our drugs don't last more than a decade or two because we get better. They perfected acupuncture such so that it hasn't had a need to improve for 4,000 years. It's such an effective tool because it functions down at this energetic level of biology, down at this atomic electromagnetic field flow uh, of information. And so that's where cancer ultimately begins is with this big disruption in emotional trauma. I think a physical trauma can can probably predispose as well, but I think typically a, that trauma is then has to be followed by the adjacent emotion that would come with it, whether that's fear, a sense of loss of function and hopelessness, you know, you, you reconsolidate that acute injury with then an emotional trauma that's stored in our tissues and has, I think, a much more detrimental effect than the physical trauma had at the beginning of this this process.
0: So, with the emotional trauma, you said they, they can, it can kind of store in the muscles, so could like a physical trauma like be a trigger for, for that, that storage, that memory?
1: for sure and i think you know many of you have probably experienced this during a good deep tissue massage or you know, my favorite therapies in this world of my body work is actually myofascial release therapy or MRT and it's so typical that you'll be in the mix of MRT and they'll be pushing on this little focal point on your back or on the back of your leg or in the front of your thigh, wherever it is and suddenly you're having this huge emotional detox, you're just yep. bawling and you don't even know where that's coming from, you don't have a specific memory that you can recall tied to that emotion but you're suddenly releasing this huge emotional burden that's been carried in this tiny little spot in your body uh, causing severe inflammatory you know dysfunction downstream of that stuck emotion so uh, a profound experience and one that we need to really pay attention to when it comes to our discussions on how do we prevent cancer ultimately we need to release negative emotion yeah
0: your thoughts have that power like you what, what you're choosing to manifest in your in your mind
1: That's right that's exactly right and, and the way that you acknowledge self-care right And so a lot of us are like oh I need to do self-care I need to get to the gym or I need to get I, I need to go do my yoga or you know I got to get in my, my 40 minutes of exercise but we don't often sit down silently go to a quiet space within us, and start to just let go of the emotional things that got logged today. I had this moment of sense of, like, abandonment uh, from my team today. I was like, we were on track, and then suddenly it was like, nope, they just left me out to hang, and that frustrated me. Like, acknowledge that and just be okay, well, that's okay, that was an event, but now I have an option I've got an emotion tied to that event, I can either store that in my body for the rest of my life and it can accumulate with all the other emotions or I can acknowledge, okay, the event happened, I had uh, a appropriate emotional response to that and I'm now going to let go of that because that event is over and I don't want to carry that in my body anymore. And so the simple exercise of releasing today's emotions and just being in that quiet space until we reach some sort of sense of groundedness and sense of... I'm free again like I'm not I'm not carrying a thousand little emotional reactions with me into tomorrow
0: so I was part of your base camp and one of you know we get assigned a coach that we have our our weekly calls with and so she gave me the option if I wanted to you know have some mindful time with her and do some breathing and and the the second time we did it she she's like I can sense that you're like really you're tense and you're you you're stressed and she walked me through like nobody has ever done before just basically coaching me how to quiet my mind and just do some basic breathing and I started to cry and it was I like this is the first time that I can remember in the history of my life actually having stillness in my brain just from what she was coaching me and walking me through just to be still and there was a complete emotional release in that moment and it was really powerful
1: wow we did our job there that's it like i mean i think that's that's our calling as humans is um in relationship let alone in a healing relationship um healing never comes from somebody else healing always comes from within and that's why we call biology base camp part of the intrinsic health series like we have this intrinsic health within us and what we can do is unleash that by this this moment of silence and The thing that gets me a little weirded out on some level and excited simultaneously is the realization that in that moment that there was complete silence in your mind and you had that emotional release, that may have been the first time in 40 generations that a woman was given the space to not be in her head for a moment and to let go of all of her care for the world around her. I think that our maternal lines for 40 generations and beyond have been so burdened with do 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 damage control damage control damage control prevention 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 and in that moment you may have broken a pattern that had existed and we know epigenetically at that moment when you break that cycle you just change it for the 40 generations to follow you
0: well, you know, the first thing I wanted to do is, was teach my daughter how to do it, like in terms <laughs> of just like quieting, and yes. and you know, she does the self hug where she does, "You are wanted, you are loved." She does it to her dog too. She just um, she wants to pass it on as well. So back to the cells, though, because we've heard that inflammation is, is at the root of of would you say all or most disease.
1: Yes, inflammation is at the at the root of chronic disease for sure. It's uh, you know early on in the pathophysiology. I think first is kind of this loss of communication, uh, where you start to deteriorate in your cellular response, and the first thing that tends to happen is we start to accumulate inflammatory information or inflammatory you know, damage in the in the cells. Uh, uncorrected, this ultimately leads to cancer. So cancer is just the, the end point of of that chronic accumulation of cellular injury that's not repairing anymore because the body's lost or that cell has lost the communication within it that would inspire the repair or ultimately the the program cell suicide and replacement with a healthy stem cell. And so when you lose that natural regenerative you know apparently infinitely regenerative capacity of human cellular structures with their stem cells at task, we start to realize, wow, this, this is really the fundamentals of not just, you know, disease, but actually the aging process itself. The aging process is 50% due to a loss of cellular communication and another 50% due to dehydration. And so really that is, you know, the human condition in a nutshell is this loss of communication. As the loss of communication accumulates, you know, if, if the damage gets to a certain point, then we tip into this you know, chronic inflammatory state uh, that will then breed the disease.
0: So these chronic conditions are. Do you think people are just genetically predisposed to expressing them differently? Like I, I have PCOS, maybe somebody else is, uh, you know, diabetic or ADHD. Are they? Are we all essentially having the same issue, but our bodies are presenting it differently?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the only way we can can explain the fact that at the same time in history autoimmune disease, metabolic collapse with PCOS, pre-diabetes, diabetes, precocious puberty, lipodystrophy disorders, you go on and on, and just the metabolics, the cancers, childhood cancers, adult cancers, the uh, autoimmune conditions, if I hadn't mentioned that, like Hashimoto's with the thyroid, uh, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune disease of uh, wheat intolerance you know, and things like this You know, we've got all of these inflammatory things that all happened at the same time between 1996 and 2011 we saw this explosive rate autism in our children Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in our adults all at the same trajectory and so clearly all of those have much different pathophysiologies in the, in the, in the western medicine training and yet they all happened at once and so we have to recognize that there was a single environmental, you know, perfect storm that happened over the last 20 years to trigger all of these disparate seeming conditions in the, in the human population across all genetics. Remember, it's like across all developed nations, no matter what of the genomics and everything else, it's not the genes that predisposed us. So what's making us vulnerable and why to what? And this is, bizarrely, ties us back to the microbiome. By 2005, 2008, we were starting to decode the human microbiome genetically, and so we were running genetic analysis on on the types of DNA in the human intestines. And what we were finding, bizarrely, very quickly, in groups out of uh, UCSF and other areas around the country, were starting to recognize that there was a correlation. There was a correlation between a loss of microbiome ecosystem elements and disease prevalence. And it got to the point very quickly where they could say, whoa, if, if the human gut is missing these species, that person's really at high risk for breast cancer. Whereas if it's missing these species over here, it's at risk for diabetes. And so this has really become a whole new world of revelation that human vulnerability to disease is not actually a human cell problem. It has to do with the vulnerabilities in the micro ecosystem that would support those cellular systems. And it's bizarre to realize this, but it turns out that your microecosystem, the microbiome of bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses that team in and around your body are not at all limited to your intestines. Doctors, when they think about the microbiome, and I would say consumers too, immediately think of the colon or maybe the small intestine, maybe the skin. But that's about it. The reality is we now know that breast, the healthy human breast has... Uh, a huge microecosystem ecosystem that takes care of it. In the healthy breast we find that again and again the dominant species is something called sphingomonas. In contrast, once a cancer cell starts to develop, once you have long enough long-standing inflammation and lack of oxygen in the in a breast tissue that would then allow a cancer to grow, in that tissue it's a methylobacterium that grows as the dominant species. And so it's just fascinating to realize that our bodies are teeming with microbiome. And the more vulnerable it becomes from microbiome level, i.e. the more antibiotic that you're exposed to, the more Mm -hmm. sterile you become, the more prone to these collapse of disorder and disease you get.
0: So with, with the sterile environment, it feels like, you know, our, our kids are being born into a more sterile environment by the day. From the moment they come out in the hospital, the, the first thing they want to do is cut the cord and wash the baby. And a lot of these are C-sections where they don't even get the, the vaginal bacteria. And then they, you know, get their vaccines. And what are we seeing now in kids that are just, because they are, kind of isolated in this clean environment, is this is this affecting things as well?
1: 100%, 100%. And, uh, you know, we now recognize that that C-section birth is the highest, you know, vulnerability that you're going to do to that kid's immune system over the first year of life. And so mom's vaginal flora really sets the whole foundation for the microecosystem for the rest of the life. So for all of you listening, if there's one thing you were to take away from this this talk, I would ask that you would remember that if a C-section occurs, make sure that, that mom and dad are prepared to do a vaginal swab and cover that baby in v- vaginal mucus. And I'm talking about covering that baby. I want all the skin covered. I want the eyes, ears, nares of the, the nostrils of the nose, uh, the, the lips. You can hit the mouth if you want. you got the... Rectum, you got the, you know, get the butt covered, get the the toes covered. Just cover that baby with vaginal mucus and probably do that every couple hours for the first, you know, day of life because uh, if not born by C-section, that child would have spent, you know, many hours in the birth canal. And so there would have been time for that bacterial flora to really set up shop before the baby was exposed to the hospital flora. And so imagine a C-section born sterile through a sterile incision in the abdomen, no transit down uh, the, the mom's birth canal, and suddenly that child is put on uh, a hospital bed or on that hospital scale, and immediately it starts to, to inherit just a few species of the, the highly drug-resistant bacteria that tend to be bred in these hospital settings. And so suddenly that kid has a completely abnormal biome. What happens to that kid? They're very likely to start having colic within the first six to eight weeks, which where they're kind of inconsolable at night and have irritable bowel syndrome, kind of bloating and discomfort after meals and nursings. Uh, that kid then goes on to start to have ear infections by the time they're three, six months old. Which immediately gets them hit with antibiotics, antibiotics which of course yeah. is so bizarre because they're all, you know, vast majority are viral. So they get hit with an antibiotic, and suddenly they're they're even more deficient in microbiome. And now, by the time they're one and a half, two years old, they're starting to get strep throat because they have all of these. You know, very few species left of strep and staph that's on this in the nasopharynx and in the back of the throat on the skin that can actually survive all of this, you know, denuding of the antibiotic world. And so they start to get these invasive strep infections and they get their tonsils cut out, which of course is the tonsils are the biggest, you know, reservoir of immune and microbiome data in the entire upper respiratory and gut systems. Uh, only f- you know to be reinforced at the appendix at the lower. And so the tonsils in the appendix have long been cut out for many decades and generations, saying, oh, these are just useless chunks of tissue. Uh-huh. Now we realize that is the immune system. That's the entire library of the microbiome for the body, so that if a viral yeah. infection occurs or if antibiotic exposure happens, your body can recover quickly. In a matter of weeks, you can go back to the same micro e- ecosystem as long as your tonsils and uh, appendix are, are intact. With those removed, you're much slower in the recovery because you don't have that same data bank stored in these safe havens within the, the tonsils and appendix. And so that kid goes on to have a deficient immune system with the tonsils cut out and that kid's gonna have very high risk for major depression, anxiety, sleep disorders in college. Uh, and then uh, fertility issues as they move into life after that. so th- there's this just a steady cascade of inflammatory changes happening over the courses of life, after the infertility and your risk. Then it happens the metabolic stuff, prediabetes, diabetes mm-hmm. uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, that whole spectrum there. Uh, moving into later in life, we get you know at risk for neurodegenerative conditions as adults we get at her risk for cancers heart disease vascular syndromes all of this so it's just the steady scope of decline if we don't begin at that fundamental foundation of mom's vaginal flora we should be born vaginally
0: yeah it's it, that's one of my biggest regrets about my daughter is i had my holistic birth plan that had a if they're an event of emergency C section, which is not gonna happen, but it did and I wasn't prepared for that. So I definitely advocate for people to be prepared in, in that event because I was over here talking to a girlfriend on a podcast earlier and we we're like, you know, they can do the vaginal swabbing, and I'm like, At what age can we stop that? I mean, can I do it to my six year old? I mean yeah. like <laughs> because I, what, what do you do with that didn't happen and you didn't know and now my child is missing a big chunk of this the the microbiome that uh was owed to them
1: yeah i you know the reassurance if there is you know, is that we can uh move back towards a normal state for age-appropriate microbiome and so that vaginal mucus is, is really supposed to do the microbiome for those first few months but after that it's supposed to be reinforced and and transformed by breastfeeding and and touching the mom's uh, skin and the skin of the animals around us and the humans around us and being held by many adults and kids alike and so it's in contact with all these other you know beings that we start to really modify and mature our micro ecosystems the microbiome of a one-year-old should look dramatically different than a newborn Um, and so I would say no, no role in doing any microbiome transplant for mom's spasm mucus <laughs> after about probably maybe even a week of age, it starts to become less relevant. But I'd say in that week to three months, if you, if you just had a C-section, I think I'd be tempted to go ahead and do it on that baby anywhere out to the kind of three to six month time frame. After that, you're not much sense in it. And um, the other reason you really need to catch it early on is because mom's microbiome changes very rapidly after pregnancy. Um, Your microbiome is really uh, shaped by the progesterone, estrogen environment of pregnancy, and you'll start to lose that quickly. If you've stopped breastfeeding, then there's very little rationale in doing any vaginal swabbing because uh, your microbiome has, has shifted away from the appropriate combinations.
0: Right. The mother is, is also p- passing through some immunity, too, right, through um, that's right. What, what, what we have been exposed to are immune to. There's like a temporary immunity passed through at that point, at that stage, through the, is it through the birth canal? But I know there's some through the breastfeeding, too.
1: Yeah, from the breastfeeding itself, yeah. So that's where you'll get that kind of antibody transfer uh, through the breast milk. It's interesting though, because I, I know a lot of babies that are not breastfed. They, they're, they're formula fed or whatnot. And I'm always amazed that they survive those first six months of life because we've learned a lot about the innate immunity system. And the immune system is so immature, anything under six months of age. And yet these kids thrive. And so I have a hunch that we've way underestimated the power of the microecosystem to be the majority of our immune system and this whole T cell B cell innate immunity that gets all of the credit and all of the NIH funding and everything else it can't be the main player else we'd all nearly be dead or dead by the time we're you know 2 months old the, yeah. so the fact that we have any immune system function during that phase even if we're being not getting the benefit of breastfeeding we still survive that yeah. time and time again and so uh, the the microbiome is powerful so if you you're past that, kind of, you know, a couple hours to a couple weeks after birth, then the microbiome needs to be, you know, adopted by that kiddo, especially at your 6 year old perfect example. Her microbiome should look like the trails uh, that are running through ancient ferns and pines in your California neighborhoods. Uh, you should be that that girl should have the micro ecosystem of of the giant birds that are in the air around her she should have the micro ecosystem of the lizards that she would pick up in the in the, in the in the forest uh, the microecosystem should be that of the pine cone that she's sitting there smelling in the in the woods. And so we now know that the 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 power of diversity is the whole story of of microbiome and immune system function in adults as well as children. And so it's exciting that you didn't completely miss the opportunity to create health Um, in that child, because we can make that anew. We can reconnect to nature to get a much deeper, perhaps the best microbiome she's ever had is just about to happen in the next few months. And so, you know, I'm really, you know, bullish on the fact that, um, while I think it's incredibly important for those first couple years of life, we haven't missed the opportunity for real microbiome strength and diversity as we move through all stages of life.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I grew up you know, running around barefoot all over the place, and she she does as well. And we got our garden here, and she's getting her hands dirty, and so that makes me happy. Um, but you also mentioned, um, in talking about, like, chronic issues, you mentioned precocious puberty. Um, is that the, like, early onset?
1: Yep. Yeah, that's a medical term for early onset puberty that's become really, really common in young girls especially, and it's the first signs of insulin resistance and metabolic patterns of... Uh, that can lead to infertility like PCOS and diabetes and the like.
0: Ever since I had my daughter, I had said that this was my goal and I always got strange looks was that I would be really proud of my my daughter's health if she made it to like 14 or 15 before her period started. And so what is is early onset and what would be considered um, normal at this point? Because I know I've read studies of five, six, seven-year-olds starting their period that early.
1: That's right, and that—that's—that's that's the official pre- uh, precocious puberty. Before age ten, I think is you know kind of your diagnostic cutoff, um, and so you know your 8, ten, eight, nine-year-olds having periods is obviously extremely abnormal. I would argue that is probably abnormal under the age of 12, um, but in that 12 to 15, you know, zone is kind of the, the normal bell curve. A uh, few girls getting it by age 12, most of them starting to kick in 13 to 14, and then there will be some stragglers on the 15 to 16 range there um, would be the typical bell curve. Um, but yeah, we're seeing fewer and fewer women making it out to that, that 14, 15 years of age, and, and uh, the, the ovary is, is developing. It's reproductive capacity too quick under the influence of insulin in this case. So uh, high insulin levels due to environmental injuries to the liver and gut and everything else are speeding up this process process in young girls.
0: So, you know, during your base camp, you were explaining the gut-brain hormone connection. And because I I got my formal diagnosis of PCOS about seven years ago, and I kind of went into this data collecting phase researching experimenting with myself with foods and supplements and kind of piecing together this puzzle of this condition and just for myself my own experience of how I respond to different things how what do my hormones look like when I do this and and then enter you into this research I started to see some of your information kind of fall seamlessly into some gaps in my puzzle and then then you completely blow off my nice, tidy end pieces and expand my <laughs> picture completely. And he were talking about just the breakfast can you talk about like the how we eat and the timing of how we eat and how i i I had to pause it and i was like (laughs) i just got taken to church because i thought it was special but apparently this is like this is where it starts
1: (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's pretty fascinating um yeah so i think you're referring to the to the endocrine system there as far as the the hormone patterns that decide what we're going to do with the food that we consume and the stress patterns that can emanate from there so um Yeah, it's a fascinating journey. And so, this is some research that got done at the University of Virginia and a couple other universities collaborating on this back in the late 90s and early 2000s with the discovery of a new hormone called ghrelin. Uh, Ghrelin sounds like gremlin or growlin, is what a lot of my patients call it because it actually is the hormone that makes your stomach growl. So, this is like your your appetite, rumbling, hunger, tummy um, appetite signal that's secreted by some cells within the uh, intestinal lining of the stomach there. And so as, as the ghrelin levels start to rise in the bloodstream, your brain, your autonomic nervous system, your pancreas, your gallbladder, your whole GI tract, your acid production center in the stomach, all start to get revved up and ready for dealing with that first meal. Ghrelin turns on every morning at a very predictable time frame. It's right around 4 a.m. It'll vary a little bit based on the time of dawn yesterday. So in winter it'll be a little later, and summer will be a little earlier. But nonetheless, we're we're tagging on to that process of the uh, initiation of hormones, and as the hormones uh, start to rise in the bloodstream, they start to signal preparation of a meal. As the ghrelin Goes past kind of that hunger threshold, and the body starts to realize that uh, there's a, a, a lack of calories coming in. It starts to make some adjustments, and it turns on uh, a counter-regulatory surge of growth hormone, which is inflammatory in itself. But it starts to prepare the body for this kind of stress response uh, to the environment. Subsequently, by you know that that happens around typically around seven or eight a.m. We haven't eaten anything by 10 a.m. If we haven't eaten anything, we've turned on our whole adrenaline stress system, so we get epinephrine and norepinephrine surging, and now we're in a full kind of you know autonomic sympathetic nervous system state. And I think a lot of people do this to themselves subconsciously because they they feel the need for this big adrenaline surge in the morning to get themselves going, mm-hmm. get through the work meeting, is tackle the emails, and you know not feel completely deflated and so i think we've been you know using this firefly state to get ourselves through overly scheduled or overly busy days and and we're missing the opportunity to go into these meals with silence when you subsequently eat every single meal on the tail end of these ghrelin surges and growth hormone surges and norepinephrine and epinephrine surges, we start to really believe that our body in a chronic famine and we start to store fat because there's lots of calories coming in but we've put a bottleneck on their usage. We're, we're trying to store them instead of burn them. And so we start to feel fatigue and we start to feel you know like we're running on fumes because our battery's not, body is not letting those calories that you just ate into the cells. Instead, it's storing it as fat cells in the liver and periabdominal space primarily, and that drives inflammation. It drives insulin levels up. It drives that metabolic process, everything else. And so if your children are missing breakfast consistently and not eating until they kind of snack on some junk food or something like that at 10 a.m., the chance of them having a normal metabolic and and kind of inflammatory uh, kind of cascade through their early life is near zero because they're storing everything as fat. And so that's uh, this realization that eating breakfast, eat early, eat healthy. Uh, if you're not going to eat early, then be very conscientious about your pattern. And so you need to think about you know waiting until noon instead of you know cutting things short at eight or ten a.m. eating this late breakfast. Think about that noon as your first meal, perhaps, so that you can get through a full intermittent 18-hour fasting cycle that can help your body get into ketosis more effectively. Uh, insulin levels, again, start to drop by that time. And so uh, waiting until that full 18-hour pa- pattern has gone by will will improve the outcomes.
0: Yeah, I, I think just that information in and of itself gave me a little bit more uh, ability to have some consciousness around when I was choosing to eat and if, if I missed it then I then I wait I wait until like you said like the the noon time and so I'm giving myself that digestive rest I didn't know that until you know three months ago and it's amazing
1: and it's a powerful tool and, and you know to tie all of that together you know we have, it's important to go back to that quiet space that we started the cotton podcast with you know I think every spiritual practice in history has always said stop and be grateful for your food say a prayer uh, over your food and it turns out there's a lot of biology behind that if you if you just rush into that meal without taking a conscious moment to go silent and you steam into that calorie intake with this high pressure high energy state of you know thousand thoughts a second in your brain you're not going to digest that peacefully. You're going to put that into this fight or flight state. You're more likely to store the fat in the liver. Um, we have you know, many, many thin women have polycystic ovarian syndrome today. Uh, you do not have to be obese to have fat storage disorders in the liver and have high insulin levels we used to think that that was just you know, an overweight condition. Not at all. Uh, you know, it's thought that maybe 40 to 50 percent of women with PCOS now are lean variants where they, they don't look like they have fat storage. But if we look at their liver, indeed, loaded with with fat cells due to these improper eating patterns and uh, uh, an overload of stress pattern eating.
0: So that's like the, the how in terms of when when you eat and going into it mindfully but i know that there's a lot of discussion about like what we eat are, are you um able to talk a little bit about just how we choose what we eat
1: the the picture looks like uh eating low on the food chain and eating as clean as possible we now recognize that fatty liver being the the story we just told is is being driven not just by stress eating patterns but by the chemicals in our food Glyphosate or Roundup is the number one chemical worldwide now in the herbicide, pesticide world. And my lab has become kind of experts in this area of study of how Roundup is affecting our body's ability to deal with calories. And it turns out that Roundup is recognized now as a major cause of fatty liver. And one of the main sources of that is actually fruits and vegetables. And so it turns out that kale, this, you know, always the women, the health conscious women going after that kale salad, kale that is not grown organically or regeneratively, which would be ideal if everything would be regenerative. We wouldn't have disease on the planet, right? And so this organic regenerative kale, great. But if you put a chemical in there like Roundup, then that chemical opens up the gut lining through a leaky gut injury. And suddenly all the fiber in that kale is a noxious injury to the immune system. And you get this inflammatory reaction. You have bloating. You've got slow digestion you just feel miserable for you know three or four hours later and you're like I ate great today I just had a kale salad and I did yoga and why do I feel like crap yeah. it's because that that kale is on the dirty dozen list it's on the usually in the top three or four Most contaminated crops out there. So we have to be very careful. EWG, Environmental Working Group, great website, EWG Dirty Dozen. Type that into your Google search bar, EWG will pop up with the dirty dozen, the 12 most contaminated fruits and vegetables out there. Strawberries are always number one, apples are always high on the list. Um, So it's, it's always surprising to start to think about your day and be like, oh my gosh i'm just i you know i walk by a plate of strawberries at the hotel or the restaurant or at the buffet and i grab that strawberry thinking oh how benign and it's a freaking bomb of chemicals that got sprayed on that strawberry just minutes before it was picked and so just this this toxic load looks so benign as a chocolate covered strawberry and yet it's the worst thing you could put in your mouth in many ways so that that dirty dozen is a critical piece of your knowledge base ultimately what is the answer the answer is ultimately we have to get in touch with the soil again we have to get in touch with our farmers again we need to empower our farmers to grow real food again and so this is where farmers markets are a good start csa's are a good start but don't forget to grow some food in your backyard even if it's just one plant if you're terrible at growing plants you kill everything you're a brown thumb you know this then go for a mint plant grow one mint plant they are unbeatable they can't be beaten killed Um, They're going to thrive in your backyard in a little pot or in the corner of a a little sunny spot. Uh, Plant a mint and go out there and regularly pick that mint and put it right in your mouth. Uh, You get extra credit if you'll bend down and bite the mint right off the plant directly. And so just eat some mint, eat, and remember, oh my gosh, this is what real flavor tastes like. And sit there and meditate for a few minutes without mint in your mouth and realize you are missing the essence of food. The food that we eat these days does not have flavor. It just has fats, sugar, and salt pounded into it to to give our brain the belief of a, a, a flavor. Uh, But we're just lacking the essence of what food should be tasting like because we no longer grow nutrient-dense foods. And so we have, you know, taken our science away from the clinic now and into the farmland. And we started a nonprofit this year called Farmer's Footprint, and it's been my biggest joy to life so far. From a professional standpoint, nothing has been more exciting to see in an entire world. We have Australia, Canada, Mexico, North America at large, you know, coming on to this project to say we are going to stop chemical farming and we are going to start to support our farmers to grow regenerative soils that actually grow soil, pull carbon dioxide and methane out of the atmosphere, reverse global warming. All of this can be done through some very, very simple methodologies uh, around uh, this this regenerative farming technique, and so I invite you guys all to become a part of this revolution. We're really. Uh, needing your support, FarmersFootprint.us or FarmersFootprint.us, and together we're going to really change this industry. Over the next five years, our goal is to regenerate five million acres. Not just for the sake of those acres, but more to demonstrate that there is a economic benefit that is five x or ten x the profit for the farmers, which will get them out of their codependent relationship with the banks and the loans that just about break their bank every year. We are losing around six to eight thousand. Farms a year in the United States alone now, family farms are going bankrupt because their soil is dead. They cannot grow crops effectively anymore, and the artificial economy that's been put around them with the with the farm bill, crop insurance, which works as a welfare system, all this is how the banks decide who to lend money to. Which means that farmers don't even have a choice to grow real food anymore. They are forced to grow genetically modify corn, soybean, and chemically farm those things because it's the only thing the welfare system will pay out for. And so the banks will not lend against you know regenerative 13-species, 20-species farms because they don't have any crop insurance to back those regenerative organic processes. So there's an opportunity here to really change that. And so we're going after the regulatory environment, we're going after private equity, so that farmers can get and the assets they need uh, to, to build these vibrant farms without um, the, the kind of abusive relationship to the banks and the regulatory system. So uh, join us at Farmers Footprint. I think that together we can really really create a new environment where your six-year-old and all of our children among us can have a very promising future and a, and a hope of it being far healthier than we were in our 20s and 30s.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for wrapping that all up and bringing it full circle with uh, Farmer's Footprint. I'm really excited to see what, what is coming in to join that movement as well.
1: I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for spreading the word. All of you in the audience, I just recognize that you're in this moment. You joined humanity at this extraordinary tipping point. You came in with 7 billion other people to be a force of change, and you've got a great purpose in that. and And so if you don't feel like you're on purpose right now and you're floating and you're kind of in a morass confusion is what you're supposed to do. Start to take those quiet moments, start to recognize within yourself that you are here on purpose, and it's got something to do with everything we talked about today. Because every single plant person on the planet has to be interested to be a part of this solution at some level. Are you an educator? Are you just a consumer making smart decisions? Are you a parent? Are you a child? Are you an aunt? Are you an uncle? What are you? Those titles are only a smidgen of what you're capable of becoming. Because when you drop the titles and just become you, uh, we'll, we will realize a new state of consciousness as a species, let alone a new trajectory for consumer behavior and beyond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Zach.
1: You are so welcome. Thank you, Jenny, for having me on. Blessings on all of you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You too. Take care. So I don't know about you, but I always learn something new listening to Zach talk. And so it was a pleasure to have him on the show. And... I know we didn't talk specifically about his Restore. I know many of you are familiar with it. It's his daily liquid supplement, which is designed to support the protection of the entire GI tract against environmental foodborne toxins. And Specifically, herbicides and antibiotics are some of the things of of graver concern to many of us, especially when we might not have the ability to be so picky about a particular meal. And so I'll always take the Restore prior to consuming something that I can't guarantee if it's organic or not, and that it might be, you know, have some Roundup in it. And I have seen the clinical studies of the Restore actually tightening the tight junctions are what they're called. And when they separate, that's where you get leaky gut. So I have seen it in action. I have experienced it with myself, specifically with gluten. And we did want to be able to offer you a discounted rate at Try and Restore. So it's for a limited time. There'll be a code and a link in the show notes directly to purchase Restore. And on his website is a plethora of information with FAQs. And videos and the, the clinical studies on Restore itself. So if you learned something new, want to share the podcast, we'd love it. And give us a rating and review if you haven't already. And we'll see you next season.